What's up, everyone? Thanks for tuning into the Mishmash podcast. Today, my guest is Catherine McCarthy, Welsh author of dark fiction. Catherine, thanks so much for taking time out of your evening to chat with me today. Thank you, Matthew. It's lovely to be here. So we are acquainted through Twitter. Uh, I believe we're both active in the the writing community, or at least with other uh, creatives and writers on there. Is that correct? Yes, that's right. Yeah. Um, so for me, part of what I found interesting about your content is it st- it stood out to me, and that's why I wanted to reach out to you f- to to do this interview because. As much as I love supporting other authors, I'm sure you've had this experience too. I feel like much of the interaction there is driven by, you know, um, authors who are trying to just promote their own work, right? And for me, I'm always trying to reach out and support other writers too. But it's nice when you see, you know, meaningful actual content coming from someone, you know? Um, yeah. And you being from Wales, I'm always fascinated every time you you share a photo or, you know, you discuss some of like the local history. That was something that drew me in immediately, especially because it stood out compared with all the other, you know, self-aggrandizing content that filled the the feed. Um, What has your experience been like as an author, you know, on Twitter and and involving in the writing community? Um, I probably joined Twitter, I think, about four years ago now I was very staunch anti-social media until um I guess I would to be honest I'm probably being forced into it you know it's a necessary evil really when you're writing um but before before I wrote you know more more long term as I do now while I was still teaching full-time I wasn't on any social media um I think you've got to be careful when you're teaching as well with social media so I didn't bother joining any until I finished work full time um and I found back four years ago I think on Twitter was by far the best social media platform for writers and particularly um dark fiction or horror writers um the engagement there and the community was outstanding um, unfortunately, though, I think the last year it has declined a lot, you know, an awful lot to the point where you're seeing so many people leaving and you're spreading yourself out and your time out between all these other platforms, you know, trying to build up another community there. So it's been a bit devastating because I think I've got about almost 12,000 followers on Twitter, but um, which is way, you know, in front of all the other plat- platforms. But it's really going downhill badly, unfortunately. I, oh, I agree completely. And it's it's a shame because I really, truly enjoyed the interaction that I had on Twitter. Yeah. And it, it, you're, you hit the timeline perfectly. Um, I, I'm sure there are a number of reasons, but my problem yeah. with pivoting away from Twitter now is I don't know where to restart. You know, I, I haven't, yeah. I'm active on Instagram, but that's also because I'm a photographer. So that's my yeah. primary outlet for that. The writing, I mean, if I put a graphic together, you know, in, in support of, of a release of, you know, some sort of writing, then it'll go to Instagram. But beyond that, I know threads is, is up and coming and there's other things, but, yeah. <laughs> and TikTok is not for uh, people of my generation, I can tell already. So um, even yeah, that is, yeah. is difficult. I just, I don't enjoy it, you know, I, and I truly did enjoy Twitter. Yeah. It's just. Yes, same, now. yeah. It's a, I think most of my, well, n- probably 90% of my writing friends have come from Twitter. Um, Instagram, I'm on tour. But like you say, you know, you have to make a visual graphic. And if you're going to post every day, that's so time consuming as well, you know. And it's hopping about everywhere. I've, I'm on Blue Sky. I'm on Facebook. I've, I 
got a Substack going, which is doing okay. I've, I'm just short of 100 prescri- um, prescri- prescriptions at the moment. Um, but TikTok, I absolutely 100% will not be doing TikTok. Right. Oh. No way, no matter what. <laughs> uh, it's for me, I, that's the same stance that I took. And I love what you said earlier. Like, it's a necessary evil as a writer. I am yeah. by nature an extrovert and outgoing person. I love socializing and interacting, but I really like yeah. those interactions to be meaningful. And I find that largely through social media, it is not. It, there is either an ulterior yeah. motive or just something yeah. lacking. And so I very much understand and can relate to that idea of um, not wanting to do it and doing it as as part of the marketing really is what it comes down to. Yeah. I didn't realize that you uh, instructed. Did you? Were you an English teacher or what What subject? I was a primary school teacher. Oh, great. Primary school, yeah. yeah. Um, mainly English because that was my specialism in university. And in the latter years of teaching, I, ta- I taught um, full-time for 27, 28 years. Every, all children from the age of three to 11, though most of my experience were with 10, 11 year olds. Um, and in the last sort of, oh, I would say eight years, I taught English all morning to various groups of children. And then I had my own class then in the afternoon for general subjects. I very much miss yeah. it. I, I until um, our first son was born, that was the career path that I was on, and I missed the right. classroom so much. It was more high school age students, so for here, that's the teens. Right. Um, yeah. And I just, again, speaking of meaningful interactions and socializing, like it was just such a wonderful work environment. It never felt like work. You know, they always say like, yeah. if you love what you do, it, it won't feel like work, and that was yeah. absolutely uh, teaching. Um, and writing, I suppose, as well, but it, it doesn't pay quite as well so far as uh, well, no as the teacher would have. <laughs> no, no India. Um, so you mentioned that you write and I'm assuming consume uh, dark fiction and horror. Has that been a lifelong interest? Is that something that's like relatively new for you? How, how did you come into it? Yeah, um, I, I've always been an avid reader, like literally from as far back as I can remember, age three, four I've said this so many times, so I won't repeat myself, but my mother was a wonderful storyteller. And so she, you know, she taught me to basically read um, before I even joined school myself at the age of five. I had a basic, you know, reading vocabulary and so on and lots and lots of stories and nursery rhymes and poems and all those. Um, So reading has always been a big part of my life. I think I've always tended to a towards the dark side that's my personality and I think I got that from my mother as well um but I do read you know not not just horror and dark fiction I think that's why I prefer to sort of label myself a dark fiction writer as opposed to horror because I wouldn't really call myself strictly a horror writer although you know I do write within the horror genre but it is more of a quiet horror you know suspense and um, atmospheric horror Absolutely. And I've been reading through Mosaic, which we'll uh, we'll touch upon later. And those are the vibes that come through. Uh, It's just so engrossing. And I I have an affinity for that as well, for much the same reason. Funny enough, Uh, my mother was a big reader. She was the one who turned me on to Stephen King, who's the first author that I remember enjoying, Uh, you know, the stereotypical horror fans, uh, you know, favorite author. But growing up, are you familiar with The Twilight Zone? I don't know if you've ever heard of the I, I viewed it, but I've never, you know. Right. So my my parents were children themselves when it first aired. And so it was kind yeah. of like reliving it through them. So I've always, again, had that affinity for not so much horror itself, but more like the dark environmental, you know, slow burn yeah. sort of stuff. Um, yeah. And so 
the um, in terms of your writing itself too. I like that you call it dark fiction. I had that issue too early on where I wasn't really sure yeah. how to categorize it. And for me, yeah. because it didn't really, it, it called from so many different arenas, I was fortunate enough to find the term speculative fiction. So that really yeah. worked for me because it's not just horror or fantasy or the occult, supernatural. It's a little bit of everything. And personally, yeah. for, for me, personality-wise, uh, I, I can't imagine just absorbing and, and enjoying one thing right one genre of you know one writing or music it's yeah and in terms of your writing influences do you find that well let me backtrack for, for me in terms of my writing i find my influences come from all over the place and they they yeah. manifest in interesting ways i may watch a television show or hear a song or have a personal experience that shows up in my yeah. writing but not you know exactly as it was do, yeah, you, yeah. do you find that yeah. too yeah, definitely. Yeah, definitely wide. Um, like you, you mentioned your first sort of horror thing being a Stephen King. For me, it was James Herbert, like the rats and the fog, those those type of books, you know. And then um, is it Richard Matheson, the yes. Manitou? And, you know, those were the kind of first sort of horror fiction I, I read when I was very young, like way too young to read it, really. But, <laughs> you know, young teens maybe. Um but then my sort of tastes went all over the place. So when I was in university, because I said, you know, English was my main specialism, I think I did read more classics and more literary work and started getting to that more when I was in university, you know, loving Dickens and Thomas Hardy and some of the Brontes and so on. Um, but then I like to read, like I like to read widely. Sometimes it's just for entertainment. So I just enjoy and absorb a story. But then sometimes I want to learn from writing as well. Like I, I've just started literally last night, um, Donna Tart, um, she wrote The Goldfinch, which I thought was fantastic. I wasn't keen on the ending, but it, it was an, an amazing piece of fiction. So now I've started um, The Secret History hmm. by her. And, and, I, and I look at it, you know, and I'm, I'm reading it and I think this woman is so clever. And I love to be able to learn from those people, as you say, not to copy it, you know. But, but I like to read stuff that I will learn from as well. So not just straight genre pieces. Not that there's anything wrong with those at all. I'm not I'm not saying that at all. But it depends. You know, I, I'm very much a mood reader. And I also like to choose different things summer to winter. But also, as you said, a lot of my stimulus for writing will come from what we do outdoors because my husband's a photographer like you. So we'll spend, you know, a lot of time scouring the coastline here or the woodland and old churches and old castles and so on. And, you know, as you can imagine, right, I'm not a photographer. So I sit there with a book or just my head while he can spend hours setting up one photo photograph right. so you know i absorb the atmosphere and so on and a lot a lot of my ideas come from that sort of thing because i'm totally not a visual person i'm really bad with visual memory so i have to have seen something so sometimes he'll even sort of because he's an artist and illustrator as well sometimes he will create a picture specific specifically for me as a stimulus as well because i just can't visualize otherwise <laughs> So yeah, broad. Well, it's interesting to hear you say that because one of the things that popped out to me immediately when I was reading through Mosaic was you paint such a vivid picture. Like it's it, yeah. you're 
I love your writing style. And again, it's difficult in terms of the writing community because it's such a broad range of styles, experience levels, even skill levels. And so it was really, really wonderful. I guess I had noticed that you were mentioning it uh, or promoting it rather earlier in the year. And then to see yeah. all of the wonderful reviews coming through, it was it was nice. And so I said, oh, I, I would love to check this out. And you mentioned uh, eventually getting into like the classics writers and classical writing. Yeah. I resonated with that in your writing specifically because I had much the same experience. So it, yeah. even though yeah. Stephen King was my favorite author as a child, James Joyce became yeah. my all-time favorite writer because yeah. I yeah. just became sort of a disciple of his. And I, yeah. I in terms of reading for entertainment, I went through a, I don't know if, if you can relate or if any other writers who are listening can, can relate to this, but I went through a phase where I stopped reading for enjoyment because I was afraid of my voice getting lost in the shuffle. I was afraid of absorbing too much from someone else and, and sort of not having my own voice there. Is that something, you know, that you might've experienced as well or? Um, no, I, I can't say that has happened with me. No, I think that maybe because I do read wide, you know, one week I might be reading um, Joanne Harris and the next some um, Charles Darwin or something. You know? uh, so to, I guess to explain a little more, I stopped reading what I write in terms of genre, right? So I, yeah, I found myself yeah, yeah. reading, doing exactly that, reading more broadly, because I found yeah. that that helped to bolster my own writing ability. And that's why in terms of the classics, I try, <clears throat> I guess I don't necessarily write in terms of my fiction with a commercial aspect in mind. I don't, I don't write yeah. for anybody other than myself. And yeah. I try to do so with an eye more on, on the classical structure, you know, so it's, it's writing yeah. fiction, but with an, an eye for metaphors or, or word That's choice nice. even. And that was my favorite part yeah. so far of the book was you used petrichor. Petrichor is one of my all time favorite words. Right. And I appreciate that. And, and, but again, yeah. for me, it's, it's difficult because not every reader cares about verbiage and, and words choice, but yeah. you know, when you see yeah. advesperate or petrichor, these certain things that just conjure I, I don't know. There's just more to it. So I appreciate yeah. in terms of your writing skill that you have an eye for that too. Um, just really, really yeah. well-written. And and uh, my first promotion for it is if, if anybody likes dark fiction, Mosaic is definitely something to uh, to pick up. And I knew the, the graveyards uh, and the church that had to have stemmed from personal experience or at least an interest on your part. Is that correct for the setting? Yeah. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. We, I mean, we are blessed around you because Wales is such an ancient country with so many, you know, ancient um, megaliths and tombs and churches, like literally within walking distance or definitely within just a few miles driving. We have churches that are literally date back from to the 13th century in some cases. Yeah, and, and and the situation of them as well. So you will find them in woodland. You will find them right on the coast, you know, um, as in Motel, my other um, novella was set in a little church called Munt, which is right on the coastline. And literally, you know, a farm maybe two miles up the road and nothing else. So the settings of the churches, I'm not religious. I was brought up a Christian, but I'm not religious. But I still appreciate the atmosphere and the sort of... Um, I don't know. There's just a, definitely something in those buildings that touch me on a personal level and on an emotional level. You, you could say spiritual, but to me, not in a God sense. Then you know, that's just me personally. But I appreciate the buildings and I support them as a charity as well, because I would 
hate to see these buildings disappear, you know? Oh, I, I agree completely uh, across the board. And it's interesting. I grew up raised Roman Catholic and that th- just wasn't for me in terms of religion. And I respect everyone else and, and support, you know, whatever yes, they so like to go for. But yeah. but uh, even still, I can appreciate when my wife and I took a trip to Dublin, we were uh, around the Wicklow Mountains. And we went to Glendalough and to be around the round yeah. towers. I want to say it, it might have been 13th century, some, somewhere thereabouts, significantly yeah, yeah. older yeah. than whatever we have around here in the United yeah. States. It it was an almost spiritual feeling. I know exactly what you mean because, it, yeah. or, or maybe sacred was was how I I termed it for myself. Like I knew yeah, I was yeah. in a special yeah. space, even if yeah. I didn't connect with the underlying you know source of it. Um, yeah, and, yeah, and and it did. It, at least for me, it stirred something within me. And I remember yeah. we were at I can't think of the name of the cemetery itself. But it had, again, just some of the un- these unbelievably ancient uh, headstones and just being there, being immersed in that environment, especially on an overcast day. I don't know. It just yeah. really like excited me from a writing perspective, an imagination yeah. perspective. And I guess yeah, that's yeah. – um, no, I was just going to say I guess that's my goal too is like when I have those experiences – my brain holds on to them. And then, so when I'm writing, I'm really looking back. It's almost like playing a movie th- uh, of something I experienced. Yeah. And my task is how do I convey exactly what I was feeling? How can I immerse my readers potentially yeah. in that same environment? Um, and that's what I loved about mosaic was feeling the dread, feeling all of it building in, in a way as if I was there right alongside them. Yeah. I think that's why my my writing is multi-sensory. So I will include, you know, scents and sounds and so on because of that sort of full immersion. Like I said to you, I'm not a visual person, although I try. So I will try to convey it through, you know, other senses and so on as well. And and again, too, like the alliteration and the wordplay, I thought it was phenomenal. I think one of them was like steep stone steps when you were discussing maybe down heading down to the crypt. I, th- I, I know that was the section, but I don't remember the specific uh, yeah. area. But but that that's what I love, too. Your attention to detail is great, and the way you vary it. I feel like many authors get stuck in a routine of, you know, using the same sort of approaches in terms of what they describe. And other times, it's yeah. it's forced, where you can almost feel like a formula, like they're sitting there with a checklist. Okay, now I should put in something about a smell or whatever it happens to be. Yeah, yeah. And you just crafted such an authentic, especially like the cafe. I remember like it felt like a real place. It felt lived in. And that's not something yeah. that I think everybody has as a, a writing skill. So I, that's something I really enjoyed about the book. Um, oh, thank you. Now, I think it's knowing when to use it, isn't it? You know, it, it, it loses it its effect if you're going to do it all the way through for everything. I mean, that would become so boring to read, but it's knowing those places where, yes, it'll really work at that point. And I think that's part of the writer's skill. Yeah, absolutely. And so in terms of your writing skills specifically, are you classically trained? Was that something you studied at university or is it is it just something like a lifelong skill that you've developed? Yeah, just more lifelong love of it, really. I think that's the case with any sort of creative pursuit or, or, or even a sport or it doesn't have to be creative. I think it has to come from a love of what you're doing. So, you know, I think sometimes self-taught people can be more skilled than someone who's gone through a classic training for whatever pursuit, you know, because that love and that passion is there for it. Like I said, I did did do study English main in college. So that was four years um, while I was in university. So 
there's there's an element of training but but no i'm self-taught really just from the love of it yeah Yeah. well and it's funny i've heard numerous times to the point that it's almost trite but the best writers are great and voracious readers as well so i'm sure that on an innate level um you know maybe just via osmosis you i think we find our voices through what we read and i agree completely like i'm I respect anybody, especially being a musician myself. I started off with a really basic rudimentary education in guitar, but then I ran with it myself and it helped to learn what the rules were. And then I could kind of adjust on my own to see which ones I wanted to follow, which ones, you know, felt like I needed to break. And and it's funny. I mean, I know enough about music theory to use it when I need to, but in the moments where I've tried to craft songs using theory versus just feel or whatever, you know, I felt in my fingertips at the time, those songs were the worst, in my opinion, because they were just mechanical, you know, technically they were fine. It's restrictive, isn't it? You know, sometimes there are too many rules and you get restricted. It's funny you should say that because we were watching... um, on Amazon Prime this week, um, the documentary on Van Gelis. Mm. Oh, I didn't realize it yeah. was a documentary. I love, I love his work. Yeah, oh, it's worth watching. It's quite, quite a few episodes. It's re- it was really good actually. Um, I can't remember what it was called, but if you search it, you'll you'll find him. And it was really interesting because he wasn't really trained, and he never actually wrote it. He wrote it down in sort of his way, but he always had to have someone to transcribe it. Because he he was self-taught, you know, and and didn't actually read and write music, which is fascinating when you think what he accomplished. Absolutely, and so I'm glad that we're we're on this topic because I was curious. I, I know you, I think you've mentioned Black Sabbath before as a, as an interest. Um, how important is music to you in general, and how does it influence your writing, if it does at all? Yeah. Yeah, music's always been another love of mine all through my life as well, though I'm not one of the people who can listen to music and write. Sometimes if I want to get in, this, in a mood for a certain um, piece of writing, I will listen to a, mu- to a piece of music first, but not while I'm writing. I have to have silence. But um, yeah, my first love was Mark Bolan and T-Rex when I was just like eight or nine years old. I, I always sort of veered towards, um, you know, most of, heavy music really even from when I was a child um and then into Led Zeppelin and Black Sabbath and Ozzy Osbourne and Deep Purple and all of those were my heroes when I was a teenager and I was lucky enough because I'm old <laughs> I was lucky enough to see um, most of those bands um live during you know their time as well um and 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 during the days as well, where I didn't have to go and see them in a massive massive venue with literally, you know, hundred thousand people there. It, 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 I'm talking sort of smaller venues, so that was fantastic. Um, I still enjoy those bands and ACDC and so on, and we still play their music occasionally, particularly if you feel like you want to be a bit of a rebel. Right. <laughs> um, you know, music's got to suit certain situations, but lately I've sort of. Um, I got into more sort of world music and folk music from around the world. So like on a Friday evening, it's funny because even though I'm not working full time now, neither is my husband. Friday evening is still sort of sacred in our house. We are just, it's, you know how it is when you work a full week. Friday is like the best night of the week. Absolutely. And it still is with us now. So we usually our Friday evening is like we'll play a video game. 
Um, I'm not very good because I, you know, I'm not I'm not that competent. But we play um, demonologist. Recently, we've been playing demonologist, and then I'll make like well, I'll just put a pizza in the oven or something, and then we'll scour YouTube for world music. So. You know, we've been getting into that lately and bands like, I can't pronounce them, but a lot of the um, Scandinavian bands like Wardrunner and Heilung and Fawn and that type of music. So it is sort of like rock music, but it's got much more of a folk element. And I, I love the fact that they'll play didgeridoos or just, you know, um, foreign instruments then rather than just stick to the you know same sort of bass guitar drums you know I, I love to diversify and even some Indian music and so on so I think I think when you're young you sort of it's easy to fall into the trap of like this is my genre as far as music goes and it's totally uncool to like anything else and I was definitely one of those people for many years I, I also like the goth scene when that came along as well and you know I would go to goth clubs and so on um and I liked a lot of the early 90s bands as well like Limp Biscuit and Linkin Park and those as well but um but lately now as as I've got older I tend to want to diversify more and just like learn about more what's out there not just in our own culture you know and you have so yeah music is important uh, i i'm so th- I, I if you don't mind uh us discussing that further i'm so thrilled because music is my number one passion i have to listen to yeah. it all the time if i'm not listening to it i'm writing it so it's it's probably even even though writing feels like a, a life calling music is the lifeblood i guess for me um yeah, and yeah. I, I love hearing you say that because in my house like I expose my kids to all sorts of music. I think that's really important. Um, I, and yeah. I can't relate to folks who complain about, you know, being in the car and the kids listening to kids bop or whatever, you know, station it is. I said, you're in control of the radio. That's, you know, for me, I, I never allowed it because there's so much out there. Like my daughter, yeah. if, if you're familiar with Fleetwood Mac, right before yeah. COVID hit, uh, she, I, she and I went on a, a daddy daughter date to see Fleetwood Mac and Stevie Nicks. And it was, it was just a great night. Part of it's making memories and enjoying the music, but even within, um, what I enjoy and what I expose them to, I'm always trying to evolve, right? I, I've just, I don't know. I, I get restless. I think it's the best way to describe it. And it's funny because I, I resonate with so much of what you just said, especially on yeah. the world music front. So I've gravitated more towards the heavier music. And what's funny is so many people who don't listen to, say, Slipknot or uh, Slayer, things of like really, really heavy, uh, yeah. you know, sonic backdrop, they think it's angry music and it makes me angry, but it's actually the opposite. It's more of a I don't know, a, a venting feeling, the experience of listening yeah, to it yeah. is, is more calming. But I've gotten into yeah. other stuff too, where there's a band called Bloody Wood, which is a, an Indian folk metal band. Uh, and I just, mm. I love their stuff. It's it's like Linkin Park, but with some heavier elements. Right. And I think they sing in Hindi, Punjabi, and English. So it's it's interesting. And I, I remember, if you're familiar with Slipknot or Slayer, some of these bands, especially yeah. some of these Scandinavian um, bands, Behemoth, different ones where yeah. you know it's, it's very aggressive and excoriating with the vocals you know my kids i just assumed they were used to not understanding the words and so when i shared bloodywood with them they were like well daddy we don't understand what they're saying i said you don't understand because they were speaking in other languages and i said you guys can't understand the english bands either because you know it's it's all yelling and yeah yeah. um i will have adrian von ziegler I don't know if you've encountered his work on youtube he is he writes essentially world music as well and I, uh, same thing. I was looking for 
something to use as inspiration for writing. So for me, I can't listen to songs that have lyrics because then I start singing, you know, my, my brain yeah, goes yeah. in a different direction, but I need something to drown out the silence when I'm writing. And I found his work was so atmospheric and I was going, I veered more towards a fantasy direction. And so I found myself inhabiting this mental space of a forest, let's say, a, a mystical forest. Yeah. And so he had different soundtracks essentially that he wrote for such environments and it just the the immersion experience of writing it was really really good and i'll have to message it over to you because it sounds like it would be of interest to you and he has quite a, a catalog of oh, music definitely. please do yeah really you know and, and the one that you said with um punjabi and indian music i actually love the fact that we don't understand those lyrics though because sometimes the english lyrics are pretty weak and i love the fact that you know you haven't got a clue they, they play in all these instruments arus and so on in in a forest on their music video and the sounds are fantastic but you, it's not spoiled by crappy lyrics so i love that yeah and i love too a, a diversification of sound so there's a band called agalock I'm not quite sure where they're from. I want to say Finland, but I'm, I'm probably off there. But it's folk metal. So there is nature sounds. Yeah. There are, you know, traditional instruments along with, obviously, the roaring guitars and, and everything. And I just I find yeah. that interesting. And and there's to me, it's such a waste, especially with the Internet and everything that, that we have access to. Why just stay in a narrow zone? You know, like there's a band yeah. called The yeah. Who. So not like the Roger Daltrey Who, but H.U. Right, right. And they're from yeah. Mongolia. So they use Mongolian throat singing as part of their metal stuff. It's really interesting. And it's just for me, it works. And I love what you just said about the, the language not mattering. To me, music is a language unto itself. Right. And yeah, yeah. even if you can't understand the words, if it's really well written, it'll resonate with you. You'll find you'll connect to it, even in spite yeah. of that, I, I think, personally. So definitely. Yeah. Have you seen as well um, another one on Amazon Prime? Um, do you know A.R. Roman? No. A.R. Roman. Um, he's, he's kind of Bollywood, but he's done stuff all over the world. Well, there's a fantastic documentary that literally brings me to tears. Right. And my husband is like, oh, wow. he's, he's, he's so not a sentimental person. He's the least sentimental person I know. But it actually brings him, you know, he gets a little bit choked because it's fantastic. It's, um, it's called Harmony. Harmony by A.R. Man, and he he's in, in Indian, right? And he he I'm trying to think um, of the films. Uh, hundred oh, was, is it hundred foot journey? Um, he wrote the, oh, he's okay. written music for several really well known films. I think that was one of them. Um, and it's, it's, it takes him through. Uh, he's he's in India, and he travels right from the north up, you know, near. Um, the mountain regions and so on, Tibet, and right the way down to the south and over towards the, uh, I'm rubbish with east and west, east towards China. And he picks up four different musicians or singers. And it, eventually then they bring it all together, their pieces of music with these traditional instruments into a, a, a sort of finale with a big band and choir and so on. And it is just incredible. And we, we've watched the whole series now it's kind of an indie series, really, and we've watched it all at least three or four times. Oh wow! And it's it's totally inspirational. You will you will I'm certain already that you would love it. Oh, it sounds. So I'll I'll, I'll DM that to you later as yeah. well to remind you. Yes, please do. No, I, I I'm always and again I'm always I'm just a voracious absorber of content in general, and and something like that sounds like it would be 
it completely worth the time. Um, especially yeah. if there's that strong of an emotional connection. I, lo- I love, yeah. I love that. I love feeling, you know, highs and lows, just having, you know, a visceral experience to things. Yeah. Um, and I, I think that's yeah. why music resonates so much with me. And it's funny until ACDC, the other bands that you had mentioned, uh, especially Zeppelin and them, I noticed you could find a through line of mysticism and a little bit of the occult in terms of yeah. not yeah, just, yeah. not yeah. just the Definitely. lyrics, but their images and, and everything. Was that something that you think might yeah. have drawn you to them at the time or was it really just the music or I think so I think it was all part of you know my my sort of growing up period and and all of that stuff was really like um it was the, the coolest thing to be into at the time and, and it just really did it was me it wasn't that I was just trying to fit in I, that sub, subculture for me was amazing you know and I'm really glad that I don't like the fact that I'm getting older but I love the fact that we had strongly defined subcultures growing up that we could really belong to and I think the youth today that's something they really lack because everything's online and it, I think it it sort of um, deters them it's, it's very hard to get them to get a real sense of identity because the stuff that's out there now there's just not that sense of belonging like we had we were part of a group you know and it was just the best part of your life during that time and I don't think they've got that so easily these days which is really sad I know that sounds really old when you talk about oh they haven't got that these days but you know what I mean they just don't belong like it was part of what our our identity forming was you know it's what made us what we are and it was just fantastic same with the goth culture the goth culture was exactly what I was going to bring up. So for goth culture wise, for me, I came into it later with like Evanescence and certain bands of that era. But this, you're talking about going back maybe to The Cure. Uh, and, yeah, and, to, uh, Susie and the Banshees. Um, oh, I can't think off the top of my head. I, mean, I used to go to, there was a specific goth club that we would go to in a town in Wales, South Wales at the time called Newport. And upstairs, it, it sort of had a basement. Upstairs was for the normal people. So they would have normal disco music so we used to head in with our hair I actually had all this part of my hair was shaved at the right. time to the scalp right? and then all the black makeup and um I, I look quite normal now actually boring um and and the clothing and you know it was just part of our gang and we would head in straight downstairs and just like dance all night to the goth music and it was just fantastic but you know, the- and I'm not sorry I can do it now but I'm not sorry that I lived through that you know no not at all and I think Again, I try to avoid getting preachy on my podcast because it's supposed to be, you know, fun and laid back. But it frustrates me to see modern society juxtaposed against my experience growing up and and in preceding generations, too, because there's no there's nothing of value nowadays. Everything is so superficial and and just saccharine. It's, you know, there's no true identity. Like if you said if someone said to me, I'm a goth, I know what that meant. And there's so much to it. It's, It's not just, you know. Uh, I guess what I'm saying is, is there was meaning to it. There was something nutritive, you know, in, in something you could grasp onto. Whereas now, I mean, you see it it, just with music alone, all of these ridiculously unnecessary subdivisions, sub, sub, subdivisions, right? It's not just metal music. It's gotta be whatever. And that's what I mean. I think that stems from people having an inherent, inherent need to feel special or unique, and they're not going about it the right way. Like they, they, yeah. I, they think they identify with these things, and it's it's not like it was back then, where you know there were indie bands and underground bands yeah. that nobody knew, and that's what made them cool. It's more now yeah. they're trying to carve out a little 
portion for themselves to make themselves think they feel cool or special. And there's just nothing to it, which is sad. Yeah. And then if they don't have that, you know, they focus on the negative mental health aspects that are, I've always been there. I mean, people have always suffered with mental health issues, anxiety, depression, so on. You know, we could go on forever. But unfortunately, I think they'll tap into that as a way of getting attention. And not just as that. I, th- I don't I don't mean to sound like they're not feeling it. They are feeling it. But why are they feeling these issues so strongly now? Because they just don't belong anymore. You know, they haven't got these. And I think a lot of that, I really do think a lot of that is because their uh, social life is online and not in the real world. Oh, I, I agree completely. I remember hearing once about... Um... It was called streaking, I think. It was something to that effect. And and what it was was it was either on Snapchat or one of those quote unquote social media apps. And all it was yeah. was making sure you sent a picture to this other person every day. And it got to the point that people were just taking pictures of the floor. Like there was no value in it. It was just to keep yeah. this meaningless, trivial thing alive. And it, it's interesting to hear you speak about it from your side because I know, you know, you, Americans have this habit towards myopia, right? They they I can't paint everyone with that brush, but stereotypically americans feel that we are the center of the global universe and everything and so i I try to to be cognizant of that when it comes to you know other cultures and and other places but it does seem like it's something that's not limited uh only to here and not even to europe it does feel like a worldwide thing and it's upsetting I, i know what you mean in terms of the mental health aspect right it's funny, back in the day, it wasn't something that was easy to speak about, at least here. Again, I, I can speak only yeah. to my experience in, in the United States. It wasn't viewed as something that you could broach as a topic. But the flip side yeah. was you had more of a support system. They were friends. You had meaningful social interactions that yeah. kind of served as yeah. an offset or, or an outlet, let's say, for, for whatever you were dealing with. Whereas now, it's okay to discuss it, but no one, people seem to lack the skills and the yeah. self-awareness to even make those Absolutely. steps. So. Yeah. yeah. The reverse is happening now, isn't it? You know, like like you say, you're able to discuss things more now, um, but but there isn't any help there. You know, it, it, it is just a total soup, you know? Right. And it's it stems from, uh, personally, I feel like people aren't interested in putting the work in because we have so much at our fingertips and comfort has become the default. It's, and again, speaking just for the United States, it's so easy to get whatever you want at the click of a button. Well, it devalues whatever it is that you can get. You don't have to work for it. And so socially it's the same thing. It's all, it's all artifice and and superficial interactions. If you get upset by someone, there's no more discourse. There's no dialogue. People don't know how to process not just their own feelings, but their feelings in relations to others, right? If someone gets upset at something you post, they can just block you with a click of a button and now they don't have to yeah. face it or deal with it or address it. And it's sad that yeah. that's what terrifies me for my kids growing up. And that's something exactly. my, yeah. my, my wife and I stress communication at all times. It's it's critical, yeah. I think, yeah. to a healthy, normal existence and, and not even yeah. just societally, but as a family, as a person. And so many people just lack... again the ability to put that effort in and i think that's why they're so inherently unhappy you know they yeah i don't don't know if this is a big thing by you but like i see these bumper stickers all the time about rescue animals who rescued who you know and and it's so self-aggrandizing it's it's you're trying to draw attention to yourself look at what a noble person i am i did this thing and they 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 thrive on likes and loves and you know getting adulation for that when i mean just 
get up a get a hobby right go or or just do yeah. something meaningful like i can't imagine you know you, you were talking about going out with your husband on a photo shoot and you know you're sitting yeah. and reading you're having a meaningful wonderful experience because you're out doing something yeah. you're not just glued to the screen or limited and worrying yeah. about you know what's happening digitally and especially too i'm learning more now how true it is that you know people fashion whatever lives they they want on online right they put forth their best foot, but it's so crafted. It's not even yeah. true in, in, you know, in, in a lot yeah. of the cases. And it's just, I don't know, it's sad. It's, <laughs> if you want to talk depression, that's depressing for sure. I know. And as you say, you know, they could, they can block you at the click of a button, but also they, they can also sort of like, I think people can be really vicious online as well. And there's no sort of um, redress to it because they get away with it because there is that physical distance whereas if you know you're part of a real social network and you say something back to somebody you know you you're going to be more careful about what you say because they're actually there you know so I think it gives people that um, apparent safe distance to just say whatever they want to to people without thinking about people's feelings and so on oh agreed you know, it's just awful. <laughs> no, it's it's true. And it's funny, uh, to, I guess, to circle back to the writing aspect of this, right? The stereotypical writer is an introvert, you know, sitting by themselves with a, you know, a cuppa, just clicking away on the keyboard. But for me, I thrive in social interactions. And I remember going on a book tour that I set up in New York and New Jersey a few years ago, and it was just so nice to be interacting with people. Um, for yeah. you, as a writer, what sort of social experiences have you had either with, you know, readers or fans or in terms of work that you might have done in promotion of your own book that tended to social interactions? Yeah, I would say I'm kind of in the middle. Um, I'm part introvert, part extrovert, because as you can imagine, being a teacher and a primary school teacher, it's almost like getting up on the stage and doing a dance every day, isn't it? You know, so there is that aspect. And I don't worry about public speaking especially with young people then, but I, I, I'll, I'll do podcasts and that sort of thing quite happily. Um, I'm the kind of person who, wherever I am, whether I might be in a doctor's waiting room or, or in town sitting on a bench, I'll strike up conversation to the person who's a total stranger next to me. I'm just that kind of person. But um, I do like my own space as well. Um, and another thing is, as far as the writing goes, I did do a couple of book fairs and book festivals locally, but there's very little here because I live in rural West Wales. There is practically zero um, public transport. And I mean, literally nothing, you know, because another writer friend of mine wanted to set up um, a writing a conference like like um, a sort of book festival type event then in Derby, which for you over in the US, right, the mileage there would be nothing. So it's, it's really difficult to sort of say how many miles it is, but it's not that far really. But to drive there because of where I live, I worked it out on the maps and it's like an eight hour drive each way. Wow. And there is no, yeah, and there's no public transport transport to get to that. So I, I you know, I, and I, I just, I, I really can't be doing with that, to be honest with you. And that's way too far just to sell like a handful of books. So right. that might sound really cynical, but it's the truth, you know? No, and I didn't realize that you were out in, in the rural areas. So Cardiff is more to the east in terms of like the Cardiff, the, the Cardiff is closer to where I was brought up. Okay. Cardiff is only 20 miles away from where I was brought up. So where I lived in the South Wales Valleys for, for the 
you know, the majority of my life, because I've only lived here for six years, um, public transport was more available then. So I could get go to the bottom of my street, get on a train and be in Cardiff in 30 minutes. So that was fine. But now to get to Cardiff, I would need to do, um, let me think, a, a sort of 45 minute drive, then a two and a half hour journey in a train that would cost about £250 each way. Oh, wow. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, it's totally different. But then I've got the benefits of being amongst this farming community and the sea and the coast path. And so, you know, I know, I know which I prefer. <laughs> oh, for, I mean, listen, I know which I prefer because I've lived vicariously through some of that. I, you know, my the trip that my wife and I took to Ireland was so yeah. unbelievable. I've never seen a place as beautiful as that. And so through your photos, I, I'm kind of taken back to the trip that I took there and obviously different yeah. places, but still like... The, the Welsh Ireland coastline. is very similar to Wales. Um, we've been to Ireland a few times and toured the south, you know, and it's just stunning. Like the, the ferry to Ireland is a 40 minute drive for me. So that that's quite doable. Right. I'm I'm because I'm towards the Irish coast. So I could probably get to Ireland as quickly as I could get to Cardiff now. Oh, wow. That's pretty wild. Yeah. Um, yeah. Right. And in terms of di- it's not even just the distance. I know even here in um, in New Jersey, there are certain places that. I look at the mileage itself and then I look at the time that it takes to get there and it's, yeah. it does not match up and it's because winding roads or just, you know, yeah. you're taking these circuitous routes. Um, and, and you know what, to be fair, I don't even know how important in-person events are anymore at this yeah. stage. Right. I think that, yeah. um, in terms of our own marketing and publishing, it, it really comes down to what we do online more than anything, which is kind of yeah, a bummer. Um, and so yeah. in terms of, how where your work is published through are those based in the UK the, the publishing houses or what what is your connection no, they, they are US and there's very little opportunity in in the UK again you know for the same reasons really and it's all sort of london based um so all the publishers i've been lucky enough to work with have all been US which is great but then it does make events live events more difficult it also makes um like physical copies more difficult right Absolutely. You know, because the cost of shipping these days, when I was first writing, I'm just talking like maybe five years ago, I could send a signed book to America for five or six pounds. And now it's like 12 to 15, right. which is cost more than the book. <laughs> so, you know, that's a disadvantage. Right. But, um, that's where the that's where the publishers are. <laughs> no, it's it's interesting to see how different of a time it is. I remember when I was growing up in the mall, there were four different bookstores, you know, and yeah. now you're lucky if you can find one Barnes and Noble, uh, somewhere. Um, and you, so you mentioned, uh, watching different programs on Amazon prime. I'm assuming you've also, you're also interested in, you know, like dark or occult movies, uh, or something, you know, s- cinematically speaking, is that like, do you have any favorite yeah. movies? That yeah, I, fall I, I tend to lean more towards that as well. But then I like, again, I'm very much a mood watcher as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so like some of my favorite films, I like I like the classic old black and white films as well. Some of the horror, you know, and I like um like we've got um M R James um dark short stories. We watch a lot of our favorite DVDs because as a subscription service, I only have Amazon Prime now because they, they just sold rubbish. <laughs> you know, even even Amazon Prime is 90 percent rubbish as well. So 
So we tend to fall back on our old DVDs and watch, you know, our favourites. And most of them, I suppose, are do tend towards the dark. I don't, I don't like my my taste in comedy is dark. I like dark comedy. I don't like frivolous you know what some people find amusing just washes over me completely right no i agree i agree and it's funny one of my favorite uh comedic but dark horror movies is krampus and there i mean there are several different krampus movies out there but this one specifically was just so interesting because of the humor aspect of it and and it is it's dark it's violent but it is funny i had made a mental leap that i i didn't mention here i was thinking about so my two all-time favorite horror movies are the ninth gate and in the mouth of in the oh, mouth yeah. of madness, and it's funny because they're yeah. both literary in leanings, right? With the ninth gate, I pictured yeah. the bookstore there, yeah, and Corso's, you know, oh, pursuit yeah. of of the books yeah. and stuff. Absolutely, yeah. Ninth gate is like one of our all time favorites. I we can literally lip sync a lot of it because right. I say the lines before it comes up because we've watched it that many times. And our house in um, northern Spain, mm-hmm. that, the the man's house there, you know, just so atmospheric, fantastic. Yeah, and yeah. It, it, for me, in the mouth of madness, too, in terms of like the cosmic yeah. horror aspect of it, I loved that. Yeah. I was never a Lovecraft reader necessarily again no. it started more with stephen king which obviously he was an influence yeah. uh, for that story um and so I, I know i had mentioned it to you in in the dm about um the cosmic horror so that's a, a genre yeah. that you're relatively new to is it something you're still exploring or how, how did you get acquainted yeah, with it to, to be honest my husband was an avid cosmic horror reader um when we we were together really young he was um 16 and i was 14 when we first started going out with each other so like each other's influences influenced us obviously Correct, you know because right. that's how it is and he was always into that we have i've got all the lovecraft classic collections here and so on but i never really got into it until fairly recently like the last couple of years so I'm still discovering it you know but I like to like put little elements of that cosmic horror into some of my writing as well like as I did in mosaic with the hunter of the in of the dark yeah right and I and think so what appeals to me about it too is in the same way that you referenced like certain comedies right that would just kind of go right over your head because it's it's just too on the nose it's the same thing yeah. with horror if it's just so gory in terms of the the writing itself I like that feeling of dread which is I guess before it really blew up in terms of Hollywood and television shows, like post-apocalyptic writing um, was something that I was really interested in. And now it's just, it's flooded the market so much that I don't even really enjoy it. But what I loved about it was that, that premise of everything, you know, starting out on an even keel and then the slow rise to whatever the circumstance was. Um, And so, yeah, I, I, that's what I appreciate about the, the cosmic horror. I think it, there's just more to it, you know, in, in terms of the development. Um, yeah, so, yeah. and then, so in terms of your writing, do you, it seems like you've released a lot in the last year or two. Um, do you have anything, you know, on deck for 2024 that's coming up or where are you at with your, your, you know, publishing? Yeah, yeah this, you are right. In 2023, I had two novellas and a novel published, but I didn't write them all in one year. I mean, people always assume that like 2022 was the year of the short story for me. I think I had eight short stories in different quite well-known anthology so I really broke through with publishers as far as short stories went then um but then last year it was um in July just gone I published through Nose Touch Press um, my gothic novel A Moonlit Path of Madness that's set mainly in Wales but partly in Vermont 
um, and then mosaic with dark matter ink um, in August. And then I YA novel, YA crossover, The Wolf and the Favour, which is set right here in the house through Bridget's Gate. But that one I'd actually written probably three to four years ago. Oh, wow. Um, next year I have, what have I got coming up? In April, I have another novella being published with Robert um, Dark Matter Inc., which is called The House at the End of Lacelean Street. Oh. It's a bit of a sort of... um. I've gone off on a tangent with that one, but out of all the books I've written, it was the easiest book to write. It just literally flowed. It's really strange. It was almost as if I was possessed when I was writing it, like literally from the first word to the last. And it's more speculative. It's more weird. So that is about um, three strangers uh, board a bus at midnight, a yellow school bus, and they end up on in a house on this pl- on a street called Lacelean Street. Um, I can't give too much away because it's a very strange one. They're all very different characters. They have no idea why they're there, but as time goes on, each of the three of them know why the others are there, and they reveal the others' past to them as the story um, unveils. I love I love that story. It's, it's, I, I really enjoyed writing it and I love it. And I'm looking forward to that one coming out. So that's April, early April. Um, I've got a few shorts being published in anthologies, one with Off Limits Press. Um, I'm trying to think. Another one which I signed a contract for recently and I'm not allowed to say who it is yet. Mm-hmm. Um, and another one, in a fantastic podcast, which I'm not allowed to mention yet either, although it's signed, I'm not allowed to make it public yet. And then in January, um, I'm going to be part of, um, oh, good grief, it's gone from my head. Oh, I only had it through this week. I can't think now. It's, um, it's, it's a big online you know, um, convention anyway, and I'm going to be speaking about um, the role of atmosphere in in and setting in horror, um, fan fi, sorry, fan fi club, fan fi fiction, mm. um, and the TBR um, thing is is that is that it's a big um, conference, so that's coming up in January. But yeah, uh, quite a few things lined up for this coming year, and then I have another novella out on submission at the moment, so I'm waiting to hear back on that, and I'm in the middle of writing as usual. <laughs> right. Well, first of all, congratulations. That's so, it's it's reassuring for sure to uh, know that folks out there are getting their work published and, and having that sort of success. And especially too, in such a broad, with a, a broad array of publishers, it sounds like it's been a successful experience for you. And I promised myself that I would have at least one uh, writing community centric question or topic to discuss. If you're willing to discuss what your querying experience has been like, I think that's something I I know for me, it's my number one, the most daunting aspect of being a writer. And I have works that I am planning in 2024 of trying to query for the first time. Uh, Can you talk a little about your experience of, of, getting linked up with those publishers and, and maybe what, you know, h- how you discovered them or, or what that experience was like, if you wouldn't mind. Yeah, that's fine. Um, I think I sort of, um, my first breakthrough really was with Samantha Kolyesnik in off when she ran off limits press. Um, I subbed my novella Immortel to her, not expecting anything at all. And literally 
I think it was the next day I sent a partial, the first 50 pages, and the next day she came back and said she wanted to see the full manuscript, oh, wow. which blew my mind because I wasn't expecting it. Um, so that was sort of got me a foot in the door, really, because she was quite well known. Off Limits has been taken over by Waylon Jordan now, who's also doing a great job. Um, and then really... I, I think a part of my lack or success has come about through short stories. So getting into good indie publishers through a short stories and then they get to know you and they get to know your work, you know. Um, I did try a few agents here and there, but I think I was quite impatient because to get an, an agent through the trad route, does take a lot of patience and a lot of time. I mean, I hear on Twitter and elsewhere about people sort of submitting to 200, 300 agents, and I just feel like life's too short to wait that long, right. <laughs> especially now, you know. So I've subbed more to indie presses than agents. Like I said, I've tried a handful of agents, but it's really been more sort of um, seeing like peers of mine, like I saw out Coy Hall, um, worked well with Nose Touch Press. So when they had a window open, I submitted a Moonlit Path of Madness to them. Bridget's Gate Press, who published um, my most recent novel, The Wolf and the Favour, they've been fantastic with me, with my short stories. I've been in quite a few of their anthologies. So it's kind of building up that rapport, really, and getting to know them, like I say, mainly through the short story route, I would say. And short stories are a better earner as well money-wise right and it, so in terms of it, it sounds like you've put a lot of legwork into researching and and locating these publishers how how did you go about that did you use something like i, I know when folks are looking for agents i think it was the writer's digest was a, a resource yeah. but it seems like more and more people are just sort of left to to, to their own googling um so how did you come across yeah. uh, all, all the various uh you know publishing houses yeah, all of them were through Twitter, to be honest. You know, I just keep an eye on what they're doing, what they're publishing, when their sort of submission periods are open, building up a bit of a rapport with them and their writers and so on. So it was all through Twitter. Yeah, that's how I got to know them. That's great. And I think yeah. it's an, I, I'm glad you said that because I believe that's an important thing for up and coming writers to understand is it's a lot more than just writing a book. And most non-writers don't understand that the book writing is the easy part. Yeah. It's everything yeah. that comes after that. And you do need to be yeah. proactive yeah. And, and put yourself out there. Um, and I love that too. Like some of my best experiences writing, and I, it was great to hear you say this because I know at least some of my friends and, and folks who know that I'm a writer, they can't relate to this. Uh, the feeling of being a conduit, right? Where I'm not sitting actively writing something. It's just something like that's coming through me and it doesn't yeah. happen often, but when it does, it's the best feeling ever because you know, that's, that's yeah. really good. There's something special there. So yeah. that's great. Yeah. Um, so like I think, um, Sorry, no, no, sorry. I was just going to say, yeah, that that's that's the case with the house at the end of Laceline Street, like you said, you know. But I mean, there's usually a bit of personal experience in there as well, or, or my favourite things. So, like, I make references in there with the three characters. One of them um, learns something about herself through Stephen King's It. Another one learns something about herself through The Wind in the Willows and, and the God Pan specifically. So the God Pan comes into it. Um, and then another character... Uh, sort of I based her journey on on um, a first hand experience of someone I knew I sort of when I say I knew I didn't know 
you know, personally as in, as in a friend, but they're a partner and they died through a drug overdose. And um, the, the, the brother came in, discovered his brother dead oh, wow. in his apartment. And rather than report the death, the first thing he did instinctively was to steal the drugs that were left over. And I found that so, like, sadly abhorrent that they were very close brothers, right? Really, really close. But that shows how um, gripping an addiction can be, that that you know, young man's priority was to steal the drugs and report the death later. Right. And I thought that was so tragic. So that comes into it as well. But like you say, it's a mixture of things. It's a mixture of fiction, but there's always a little bit of truth there as well. I, I think you just keyed in on the single most salient piece of advice I try to give writers, especially younger writers or new writers. The most important thing that you can do to become a better writer, I think, is to live life, to experience things, to go out and have those yeah. firsthand experiences because yeah. so much of it influences the output, I think. I think it's very difficult to live you yeah. know, a primarily sedentary online existence and expect to write yeah. stuff that connects with people because that's just it. You can yeah. write stuff that's technically sound or interesting, but the really, yeah. really good stuff, I think you, you need to have that or you need to have an emotional response to it. Like, even if it was a story, like... I can see myself hearing what you just said and having that have an influence on a situation I may write about, you know, and even though yeah. I didn't personally experience it, I had a visceral, visceral reaction hearing you share that story. That's uh, yeah. it's, it's yeah. awful on so many levels. Um, and it, it speaks to the human condition too, right. In terms of like yeah. addiction and just, there, there's so much more, it's, it's very condensed, I guess, or dense, I should say. Um, yeah. Which is great. Uh, Catherine, this was so much fun. I really appreciate you taking the time out of your, you. uh, your, your very busy night. Um, for anybody listening, is there what, what's the best way for them to follow you and your writing, either on social media or if you have a website? What, what, how can they get in touch with? Or, yeah, or, I have a website, so. which is on my um, Twitter bio. I still call it Twitter. I probably always Same. will. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Or, um, and I have a sub stack as well. I try to write something usually at least once a month every three weeks something like that on Substack and I think like you said about advice there I think another piece of advice I would give is be yourself just really be who you are and I, I think and I hope that's why I've connected with people from all over the world because I literally I know you often see the question posed on social media are you really who you are online and I genuinely am because I just couldn't be any other way and bits of like who I really am come through in my Substack newsletters as well I'm just an open book so you know they can if they want to subscribe to my Substack and look back on a few of my old posts see if you know, anything interests them. Yeah. And on Twitter, yeah. it's at Serial Semantic. Is that the... Yeah, the, the yeah. Handle? yeah. Um, I know exactly what you mean because... Uh, again, I don't I don't have quite as many followers, but out of the thousands that I do have, the number of truly meaningful and interesting people that I met is very limited. And so I, pre I, I sort of gravitate towards certain folks. And the number one word yeah. I would have used to describe you and why I even reached out about the podcast in the first place was you just yeah. seem genuinely like whoever the, what you're sharing online seems really just like a window into who you are and, and your life in general versus something that, yeah. you know, it's it's carefully manicured or, or created. Um, yeah. And it is, yeah, quirks and all. <laughs> yeah, no, but but again, I, I gravitate towards that as well. I'm I'm very much an atypical person, you know. I, I, 
who, who yeah. wants to be normal, right? In, at least in my mind, yeah. that's yeah. to be ordinary, I think would be the worst, uh, the worst sin of all there. Oh yeah, um, absolutely. <laughs> but I, I do, I appreciate you taking the time to speak with me. This was, this was a lot of fun on this end. I hope it wasn't uh, too much of a slog for you. Uh, oh no, it was lovely. And I really appreciate your time as well, because, you know, I mean, you don't need to do this for people, you know, I really, really genuinely appreciate it. And it's gone so fast. <laughs> it, it really has. Yeah. It, it sped up uh, qu- quite a bit. And um, yeah. I promise that the review, uh, not that you need them, but the, the five-star reviews for Mosaic are coming for uh, Goodreads and Amazon as soon as I can get them penned up. And I can't wait to explore the rest of your uh, your bibliography, which is nice. If if, they're, if Mosaic is any indication of what lies in store, I know I'm going to be uh, thoroughly entertained. And uh, I've enjoyed that thank experience you. so much and the experience of speaking with you. So thank you to Catherine McCarthy for taking the time to speak to me on the podcast today. And thank you to everyone listening wherever and whenever you are. <laughs>